Welcome to the BizTimes MKE Podcast. I'm Arthur Thomas from BizTimes Media, and as we mentioned on our weekly debrief episode last week, we want to share an extended version of former BizTimes executive editor Steve Jagler's interview with businessman and philanthropist Michael Cudahy, who passed away earlier this month. This interview was recorded at our 2013 Bravo IQ Awards, where Cudahy was recognized with a Lifetime Achievement Award. You'll hear stories of how Cudahy started Market Electronics and how he negotiated the sale of the company to Jack Welch and GE. Jagler and Cudahy also discussed Cudahy's 10 Rules for Business, or how to not screw up an organization. This interview is full of both humor and business insight from a longtime leader in Milwaukee's business community. We hope you enjoy it. So, Go as, a, as a child, I'm... I'm told that you were Gary Grunow and for the interview for this most recent story. Uh, he said Michael Cudahy has always been a tinkerer. He never is uh, content with the way things are. He's, he always wants to explore. That led to really what became Marquette Electronics, didn't it? You, That's that, correct. That kind of sense of invention. Yeah. Well, I'm often credited with all kinds of inventions. I didn't really. Well, there were a few inventions in that operation, but generally speaking, what happened was um, my partner, Warren Cousins, and I wanted to go into the manufacturing business, and so we were snooping around all over the place, and we happened to come upon a couple of doctors at Northwestern University Medical School, and they were looking for a central electrocardiograph system. Everybody in here, I think, knows what an electrocardiograph is. I hope you do. And uh, Hewlett Packard was asked uh, if they would do it, and they said no. And then there was a Cambridge Instruments. Uh, they were asked, and they said, well, we'll look at it for $100,000. But we were stupid enough. We said, we'll do it. I would have to admit to you that I didn't even know at that point what an electrocardiograph was. <laughs> but we did it anyway. And it took about a year and we delivered a system to Northwestern University and that just set off the whole Marquette Electronics. The system worked very poorly. I spent probably the next year of my life underneath the console, tinkering around with a soldering iron, trying to fix it. But we got it working, and from there, Marquette was born. And you built it with such a unique corporate culture that we'll come back to in a moment. But uh, in your book, you describe that you, you eventually sell your business to General Electric. You've been known to do business deals with a handshake. So you did a deal with Jack Welch. You flew to New York, I believe, and, and right. sold your company to Jack Welch with a handshake. Um, what did your book? You had some, some kind of remorse. You you, you uh, kind of regretted uh, turning over that, that piece of you, your company, your vision to a big corporation like GE, didn't you? Well, we finally come to the point where. Um, People, the board uh, and I were both saying, what happens if I get hit by a truck? And uh, 
what would happen to Marquette? And so I think our feeling, the board's feeling and my feeling was we better uh, consider being acquired, which is fundamentally against my better judgment. But uh, anyway, we went down to New York, uh, Jeff Amelt and I, the guy that ran, is now running GE, and uh, we had lunch with Jack Welch, and I don't think it took more than two hours. Yeah, I think he, Welch said, uh, well, the trouble with you, Mike, you want too much for your money. And I said, the trouble with you, Welch, is you don't want to pay me enough. <laughs> well, he says, I just came out of a board meeting, and, and the board gave me permission to give, give you 42 to $44 uh, per share. And I said, well, then you've just already agreed to 44, and I stuck my hand out, and we shook. <laughs> and Welch went spot, spot. <laughs> there aren't too many people who get the, got the better of Jack Welch. Um, in talking f for some to some people about you and the way you do business, uh, more than a few mentioned, when I think of Michael Cudahy, I picture him with a glass of early times in, on the rocks in one hand and a pen writing on the tablecloth at a table at the Lake Park Bistro in the other, sketching out his latest vision, his dream. Is, is that a, a, a apropos description of, uh, of what you do? I think that's very accurate. I notice this is in early times. <laughs> Nonetheless, we can talk some more. That can be arranged, I'm sure. <laughs> Um, as a practical matter, I want to get to switch gears. Um, in your book, and you are known for these, um, you published Cudahy's 10 Golden Rules on How to Run an Organization, uh, which you also consider how not to screw up an organization. Um, I just briefly want to go through 1 to 10. Uh, and, and, and just get you to amplify what you mean by, by these uh, kind of cut a hay commandments of doing business that uh, certainly all of the entrepreneurs in the room who are being honored today, um, I'm certain you'll find useful. Uh, commandment number one, stay financially independent. Don't let the venture guys in too soon, no matter how difficult it is. What, what, what more can you add to that point? I'll just leave that one. That's, that's all. Okay. Speaks for itself. <laughs> all right. Uh, rule number two, don't have meetings. Meetings are the curse of modern business. Most break up without a decision. If you must get together, do it in the parking lot or have no chairs in the meeting room. It's better in the parking lot when it's about January. <laughs> Uh, number three, <clears throat> never make an organizational chart. Putting people in boxes always makes some smug and others mad. A true representation of how people work together would look like a Picasso painting, and then, of course, no one would understand it. <laughs> well, I think that the organizational charts, today I still feel that organizational charts are demeaning. I don't, you know, you you're in this little box over here, and then they have another thing that they do with them. They put a dotted line from this guy to that guy. <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> Number four, 
promote from within. This one, Lawrence Peter said 20 years ago, but it deserves repeating. Obviously, if your company is growing fast, it's hard to do. But you're continuously, if you're continuously going to the outside for talent, you're probably doing something wrong. Well, I think people have, in the companies, have a tendency to say, we need a real expert for this job or that job. And they never spend enough time looking around at the people that are working for them. There are people who necessi not necessarily will pop up out of the woodwork for that job, but if you look around and you ask people, there are always a, an abundance of talent within the company. Now, I grant you, as I said there, there's a limit. You know, you if you don't have a chemist, don't start mixing up chemicals because you'll <laughs> blow your head off. Uh, leads us to number five. Don't hire consultants every time you have a problem. Well, that's my favorite thing about consultants. You know, if you, if you have a problem that is specific and nobody has the talent to solve that problem, then a consultant is probably what you need. But if it's just plain laziness, which it is a lot of the time, let's uh, put the Ajax Consulting Company in there. They'll figure it out. Why don't you figure it out? You know, that's my feeling about that. I, I th think I saw 12 consultants run out the door. <laughs> um, have a love affair with your employees. What did you mean by that? <laughs> Well, I had 3,500 of them, so that's, a, that's sort of a You're a bigger thing. man than uh, I. Yes. Um, what I mean is, basically, corporations are very cool. They give you a number, that's what you are. They don't act like you're a part of the family. That's what we did. We acted like everybody at Marquette was part of the family. Everybody I've ever met that worked there said working at Marquette was the greatest experience of their careers. Well, thank you. That's mighty nice to hear. And that's, that's a, that was a philosophy of ours. You know, the first guy that I hired, Dan Phillips, uh, was a nice guy and he was doing pretty well. And one of, the, one of the things I said to myself one day is, hey, what if Dan gets unhappy and leaves. This would be bad. I guess I better get him to like me and like the job. So I made an effort to do so and then it just grew from that. It sounds like you're a proponent of the concept of servant leadership, that a, a leader serves the people who work with him. Yeah. Um, number seven, give away the store to your employees. <laughs> well, I did. At, at one time or another, you know, if you hold all the stock and all the ownership within your own pockets or pocket, um, Joe Jones out there doesn't feel like he's a part of it. If he has even one share of stock, it's better than if he has nothing. I. Um, I noticed, for instance, 
looking out my window one day, uh, one of the employees was walking in down the walk and he uh, got up, he, gave, he went out of his way to pick up some, uh, some scraps, uh, some pieces of paper. And I thought, isn't that nice? He's proud of this place and he's proud because it's partly his. He's got skin in the game. Yeah, skin in the game. Number eight, don't play big shot. No reserved parking or private entrances. No fancy offices and thicker carpets for a chosen few. And let the people do what they want in their own area. Crazy posters, radios, plants, and decorations of any kind. It'll make the place home and people will show up for work a lot more often. Let peer pressure prevent anything outrageous. Well, there's another corporation thing that just kills you. The executives are supposed to have thicker carpets. And then there's a guy that comes through and says, oh, you could put your picture of your kids up on that wall, but it only can be this size. Why do they say that? They say it because they've, they're convinced that a decorator has figured out the right size for the picture. This absolutely insults people. Uh, we had um, all sorts of freedom in that regard. Um, people decorated their office any way they wanted. And uh, sometimes it was pretty wild. But this was part of it. We also had, by the way, I don't know if that's in the book, we had a lady who had a, a, a gerbil and she had a gerbil cage and she brought it to work every day. That's going a little far. The problem was that uh, we were a little bit nervous about the FDA coming through and saying, oh, no, I don't think so. <laughs> so it wasn't for experimentation or anything. <laughs> Number nine, ignore the competition. More people waste more time worrying about what the competition is doing than tending to their own knitting. Just keep a steady course in the direction you feel is best for your customers' needs. Elbow grease is a good substitute for paranoia. Well, I used to, uh, in, in light of that, when uh, we went to one of these conventions, medical conventions, uh, we noticed that the competition was forever sneaking around the corner to see if they could find out what we were doing. So I just dedicated one day during the, during the conference for all competition to come and take a look. Anything they wanted to see. You can't, you can't uh, photograph software, you know, that's not very easy to do. You can't uh, gain anything by doing that. And the whole point was that we were forever inventing and they were always trailing behind us. <coughs> And we let them, we let them have it. Uh, number 10, uh, finally preserve your sense of humor at all costs. Sure, times get tough, but if business isn't fun anymore, give it up and become a cab driver or bartender. You only live once. <laughs> Somehow I can picture you thinking that. <laughs> well, it's not wrong being a cab driver or a bartender. I think that's kind of fun. Um, and I think this is another very strong feeling I have. 
You know, we're taught when when you when you have a little kid about this size, you say, now you do your homework before you go out and play. So play becomes fun and homework becomes agony. If you turned it around the other way, it might be interesting, mightn't it? Um, you could you could convince people that work is fun. And that's what we did with Marquette Electronic. Work was fun. We, we used to find, uh, sometimes I go over there on a Sunday to the main plant and just mosey around. And sometimes I'd find some people working there on a Sunday. I asked one gal one time, I said, what are you doing here, Mabel? She said, well, it's more peaceful here than it is at home. Besides that, I have some work I have to catch up on. <laughs> well, you're, I believe, 89. So what's next for, for Michael Cudahy? What in the world haven't you accomplished that you still want to accomplish? Well, I want to see that whole lakefront development uh, go through. And I think we're getting there. And I presume, I presume presume that all of you in this room know what we're up to. We're going to take that old bus depot down. We're going to put a nice building there. And we're going to uh, maybe even have a new music hall down there. Wow. Well, you're driving that whole thing. I'm told that you're the, you're the connector. You're the one who uh, got the various parties to get on the same page. So again, you've changed Milwaukee. Um, and with that in mind, I want to go through the formality of, of giving you this award for lifetime achievement. Um, the list of past recipients include Sheldon Lubar, Fritz and Deborah Usinger, Stephen Marcus, George Dalton, Robert Kern, Joe Zilber, and Harry Quadracci, so I would say you're in really great company. I'd say so. Thank you. And as, as you can read in the magazine at your table uh, briefly, aside from city founders Solomon Juno, Byron Kilborn, and George Walker, few people, if any, have had more impact on Milwaukee than entrepreneur, community advocate, and philanthropist Michael J. Cudahy. To imagine a Milwaukee without Michael Cudahy would be akin to imagining a Wisconsin without 6,500 GE medical jobs, healthcare jobs, without the Calatrava addition to the Art Museum, without Discovery World, without Pier Wisconsin, without the Dennis Sullivan schooner, and without the Harbor House on the, uh, the lakefront, without the Paps Theater and the Riverside Theater being refurbished, and without the John C. S. Cudahy YMCA. Quite simply, Milwaukee would be a diminished place without Michael Cudahy. On behalf of the community, I want to thank you for your impact, my friend, and I wish you many more years with us. Thank you, Steve. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Give me. Is there anything else you want to say in closing before we continue with our program? Haven't you said enough? <laughs>
I'm, I'm overwhelmed. Well, but I thank you, and I thank all of you. I love Milwaukee. I intend to live it to a, I was, I was seeing my cardiologist the other day, and I, I said, hey, I got a lot of projects going here, you know, you gotta keep me alive. <laughs> he said, Mike, we're doing the best we can. Well, thanks again, and enjoy the Thank rest you. of the day. Thank you very much. All right. I'll get out of here while I'm ahead. This is Dan Meyer with BizTimes Media. You've been listening to the BizTimes MKE podcast. For more business news and insights, be sure to go to biztimes.com and subscribe to any of our daily e-newsletters and our magazine, BizTimes Milwaukee.